0: Hello and welcome to the One Stop Co-op Shop Podcast, your one stop for co-op news and reviews. This week, Jason Perez
1: is here to entertain you with some more Shelf Stories. Yo, my peoples, what's up? Welcome back to Shelf Stories, and channel to tell tales from games, books, and life. And also welcome to the One Stop Co-op Shop Podcast. I am your host, Jason. Thank you so much for stopping by for this latest uh, Industry Nuts and Bolts. Uh, I have been doing Industry Nuts and Bolts for a while now. I just didn't. I need a new name for it. Uh, It's a new year, so we're going to reorg some things. Uh, And the reason I am going to section this off as a particular topic in this area is because, you know, we're going to dive in. Uh, We're going to get specific. And, you know, I think there's a lot of people who have questions like, what does it really look like? you know to be a designer to be a publisher to to actually make these games appear on the table so that is what is going to be the focus of this mini series uh and uh this person right here served up a good <laughs> of content, doing all the work for Jason here at Shelf Stories. I really appreciate it. Uh, and it was so interesting that I reached out to the person almost immediately, and they were so great. Uh, so this is uh, Matthew Dunstan. He is a designer. He'll tell you all about his games in just a second. He put up a, a tweet thread about the actual nuts and bolts the finances that go into being an independent game designer. So in this discussion, we're going to talk about advances and royalties and how that all looks like. Uh, in a general way, uh, we're not going to uh, specify, you know, all the contractual stuff. But we've gone over it, and we are so happy to share it with you. So, uh, without further ado, let me go ahead and bring in Matthew Dunstan, designer extraordinaire. Welcome to the show.
0: Thank you very much, Jason. Thanks very much for having me on, and the um, very kind introduction.
1: Uh, Absolutely. Good to be you with know- you all. Absolutely. So um, but before we let's get started and talk about uh, you as a person and some of the games that we're going to talk about today. So on our show, we are uh, the solo co-op focus. So we know the adventure games and we've we've covered them multiple times uh, and they've gone on. So like they first came out, I think, what, a 2018 somewhere around there.
0: 2019, I think.
1: 2019, okay. And then, uh, so then they they have kept on going, and they we're, we, we're very familiar with them, but maybe introduce us to some of the other games with which you might be familiar, like Chocolate Factory or Echo Series. Uh, tell us all about that.
0: Sure, yeah. So, uh, my name is Matthew Dudson. I'm originally Australian, although I currently live in the Czech Republic, and I designed most of the games when I lived in the UK, which I have done for the most of the last 10 years. Uh, what we'll brought you away I,
1: from Australia to the UK or to the to EU, if I could ask.
0: Yeah. I, I went to, to Cambridge to do my PhD in chemistry uh, in 2011. Uh, wow. And I'm now currently in the Czech Republic because my fiance is Czech. And, and we've been traveling between the two, uh, between the UK and the Czech Republic for, for most of those 10 years. So uh, yeah, it's just, I've been here since the the start of all all these things happening a few years ago, but uh, it's been, a, it's been a nice place to be and and a, and a very good place to be a game designer generally. That's uh, you know, part of the, I guess, my success and uh, my ability to, to make so many games has been the proximity to conventions. You know, I got to mm-hmm. go to Essen for the first time in 2011, so over 10 years ago, and, and I've pitched games probably uh, for about 10 10 years consecutively at, at Essen, so uh, that, you know, that's a huge uh, benefit, and there's a lot of other fairs and things. Uh, and also, if it, uh, seeing as you are a sort of solo co-op, uh you know podca- uh, podcast or channel i can i can i see role for adventure on the shelf behind you actually jason so that that's uh, uh another another one from cosmos like the like the adventure games we also i also did professor evil in the citadel of time ah! which is a cooperative uh, is not, no, no, uh, somewhere ah! oh there we go <laughs> i love this <laughs> ah, game There you go.
1: i think this oh, game I'm is glad. fantastic <laughs> oh i'm glad i'm glad
0: i not not planned. Not pl- I I'll have to. If you haven't got the expansion, I'll have to send you the expansion, Jason. It's, is it the Architects of Magic? It is. I don't know. I I don't know how available it is. So I still. I got reach it. Out no no my, no. I i, oh, I good, right. good.
1: This is. I, I, it's so funny because uh, you're a co-designer. We'll talk about the co-design stuff for a second. So I don't automatically associate Matthew Dustin with these things. It's uh, you know, if it's two names for whatever reason, unless it's like you know Hans and Gluck or whatever. I, I it doesn't. But anyway, wow, <laughs> this is a lot of games. I, I think Roll for Adventure is a truly underrated gem. Like, it's so Thank easy to so play. Fun. And my my kid gets into it. They, it's very, um, we, we've reviewed it on the podcast. And, and um, Professor Evil is a heist game. You know, and there's not a lot of heist games out there that are good, especially in the cooperative space. I'm sitting there with Burgo Brothers, so of course I like heist games. Uh, and, I mean, Professor Evil is a, is a magnificent game. It's, it's, you know, we try the best that we can to keep these games in print and uh, get the word out about them. And, you know, uh, <laughs> but no, yeah, no, no, any, any awesome. small
0: world, it's, any word is is very appreciated. And and I'm, I'm very happy with how they turned out as well. Uh, yeah, so, no, excellent. Yes. And both, both those games excellent. were excellent.
1: Fantastic. Game. Yeah, both Fantastic. of those are
0: co-designed with Brett Gilbert, so I should I should make sure. And and the Adventure Games, which you mentioned, with Phil Walker Harding, mm-hmm. and the Echoes Games, which are also sort of cooperative narrative games, and those are with Dave Neal of, of sort of Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective fame.
1: So tell us about the Echo series because I don't we, we that those ones I don't think we've covered. Yeah, so the Echo
0: Series were just released this. uh, Sorry, 2021 from Ravensburger. They're audio mystery games. Mm. So uh, in the box, you'll get 24 cards, and you're trying to recreate uh, a story or or the events that have have occurred in in a particular mystery. And each object, you're basically you have have the power to to hear the memories of an object of like what was happening around that object in the story. And you do that by you have an app on your phone that that uses. uh you know automatic recognition to uh scan the card and then automatically play the sound to do with that card and mm-hmm. you basically just have to put those objects in order in the right order and how they kind of occurred in the story and as you do that you're going to uncover more and more uh audio clips which will give you more and more details about what actually went on uh mm-hmm. and, and that's basically the game There, there's uh, two boxes out already in english uh called uh, the dancer and the cocktail and soon the microchip will, will join it. Um, but that's like the adventure games. I hope it's going to be a series that, that goes on for, for a little bit longer.
1: All right. No, we got to take a look. Uh, thank you for lighting up. Uh, and also chocolate factory. We're going to talk about chocolate factory that it'll come up on the pie chart, uh, previewing for the peoples. There's a pie chart coming people. Uh, <laughs> so if you listen to the podcast, there's a very exciting pie chart coming that you're going to miss uh, hop over to the video shelf stories. You will see this excellent pie chart. Uh, so then just you know, very briefly, because I know that also is, a pretty significant um, co- contributor to your uh, yearly income.
0: Yeah, no, Chocolate Factory did really well. It's uh, not 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 a cooperative game. Another game co-designed with Brett Gilbert. Uh, no, but it was just really well received, and and it, it's a Kickstarter game that has continued to sell uh, somewhat. Um, you know, after the the initial Kickstarter, which you know doesn't always happen. Uh, usually, you know, you assume kind of the majority of your sales are going to be from the Kickstarter, and and uh, but no, it, is, it has had a little bit more of life, which is which is always nice.
1: All right. So now we're gonna get into it. We are gonna get into you know uh you know the nuts and bolts of how Matthew Dunstan has, you know, puts games on the table. And we're gonna get to the numbers, but I'm gonna save the numbers for a little bit. We're gonna uh save the 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 entree for last. Uh let's get into the appetizers. So um you are a full-time designer, right? Um, do you use your PhD or is that PhD just kind of like sitting there?
0: So the story is I'm only uh, just from the start of this year, 2022, am I officially full-time mm. uh, for the last year, uh, basically all of 2021, I was officially part-time. So I was 50% at my previous job, which I did use base PhD for. I was a research scientist still at the University of Cambridge. And That's then the preceding kind of nine years, uh, which was my PhD and, and working afterwards, I was just designing, uh, not, not as a hobby, I was, I was making money from it, but I still, I had a full-time job as well. So it's been a sort of a, prog- a progression over those, you know, 10 or, or 12 years uh, to where I am today as a full-time
1: designer. Is that a difficult thing? Because a PhD is no joke. Like you have to really <laughs> sink in a lot of a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of expertise. And to have like a life like that, uh, you know, built around a PhD. I, I did not go to the PhD, but I am so, ju- <laughs> I'm like, wow. Because I have two master's degrees and like, you know, both times I'm looking at it, you know, the, the end of the road and going, no, nah, I don't want that uh because it's a lot of work and a lot of time in the library or or in the research lab or writing or whatever it is uh so then you know just kind of walk through briefly that decision to say you know what uh i i went that so far down this road so much investment i still want to do this other thing maybe walk us through that mindset
0: wow that i mean (laughs) that's almost another podcast in itself because Hmm. it's it's a it's a slightly complicated story with me uh essentially because you know, my life is sort of split up between three countries, you know, my, all my fa- family is in Australia and my job and my kind of career was in the UK and my fiance was in the Czech Republic. And the one thing about academia that, uh, is very difficult is, is kind of choosing where you get to live or where you get to work. <clears throat> and so actually uh, there's, there's decisions that were made on a sort of a personal level. And there's also, uh, sort of on the professional side, um, you know, they're kind of intertwined, you know, you, you, you maybe have to make different professional decisions because of of those personal ones. And I think the other thing that's kind of, uh, you know, maybe important in that is that the, I guess the hardest thing for me was not necessarily to go into full-time game design. I think that made sense because financially actually did make sense and I was already kind of doing it anyway, almost full-time. Uh, but I think the thing I've actually struggled with is, is sort of an idea of identity because, um, yeah, you're right. A PhD is a, is a big thing. But even more than that, you know, it, you know, it's like when somebody asks you at a party, like, what do you do? And I'd always say, you know, as a, as a research scientist, and or I work on this, or I work on, you know, renewable energy kind of technologies and things. And to su- suddenly, actually, that's the harder part, actually, the change in identity that is, mm. that is an actual change in like a job or a day to day or I'm actually gonna still be working a little bit uh, with my old lab and, and, you know, helping some folks. I'm not, I'm, but it's that kind of change of, oh, actually now, you know, I am a full-time gator. That is my, that, you know, I don't know identity is so complicated. Thing. It's not just what you do, but mm-hmm. that's the thing I'm probably getting most used to, I guess.
1: Sure, I mean, it you, people react differently. Cause then, you, I mean, I don't know if you've ever had the experience, but you know I'm starting to transition more into the, you know content and all that kind of thing. And like explaining to people. You know, and, and that initial kind of barrier, and you, you hit the preconceptions of what games are, and it's like, oh, frivolous thing, or, oh, you know, really, that kind of thing. And I guess like, you know, research scientists, it, that's all baked in. It's like, you, they don't give that away. <laughs> then you, you go to this other thing where they're, I, sometimes it's like active resistance, sometimes it's just like, oh, well, you have to explain stuff, but there's still kind of a friction there. So, I mean, is that, you know, just kind of part of the deal that you've accepted?
0: Yeah, I mean, to be honest, mostly So when I tell people I design games, they're just really enthusiastic or actually just very curious in a, in a mm. kind of positive way, you know, that they just want to, they, they know board games. They kind of want to know what's behind it. They don't necessarily assume that even there was someone behind board games necessarily, you know, I think they see companies and they mm. don't think of designers necessarily. Um, yeah, but there is a bit of a, I mean, it's even an internal thing with me, you know, it was always easy when I would say what I did. I am like, oh, I worked on, you know, I, in the lab I worked on, we worked on making, advances in batteries, you know, so it's always very easy to go like, Oh, I'm making a real difference in the world. I've kind of tried to help with renewable energy and technologies. And, uh, and it's a bit of a harder ask uh, when it comes to games. I, th- I think games are incredibly important and I think they sure. have a, a place in culture that, you know, that can have a, a real benefit to society, Absolutely. but it's, it's not as easy as a link than, than saying, yeah, I'm, I'm working on the next battery that you might be able to put in your electric car kind of thing. Uh, so yeah, I, am getting used to that, but t- to be honest, I haven't, um, really like, it's just positive curiosity from people, which has been really nice.
1: Fantastic. Uh, so then, you know, you are a full-time designer, uh, having the organization to kind of, you know, do it well, cause it could get away from you pretty quickly. It's like, you know, I'm on my own, so I can work 80 hours if I want to. Uh, so, I mean, what do you have in place to, uh, get an optimal, uh, flow of output as an independent designer?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, you should, I should come back on the show in about a year. I'll probably get all, I'll have all the systems set up by then (laughs) properly, because I'm I'm probably still, I've still, uh, to to be absolutely honest, I mean, right, like the last two years, I think, as for a lot of people have been uh, these kind of years of not transition, but have been transitory in some way in that, you know, things have changed. For me, you know, I went from working in an office that I'd be working uh, at home in a different country that I was living in. That I was before, uh, and you know, sharing a, an apartment and all these sort of things. So, I'm not sure if I really have the system worked out. I'll be honest. I, I, I kind of want to, you know. I don't think I'm not sure what the myth is around game creation, but I, I think you have to find what works. It's not going to be the same for everybody, uh, and I think it's just basically it's always meeting the minimum amount to think keep things going. I always think about uh you know being a game designer is is managing lots of projects it's project management basically you're you're dealing with you know x number of plates spinning and you're just trying to make sure that each of them are moving ahead or that at least you're not the person who's stopping them moving ahead you know there's a lot of uh i mean the other thing about game designers is is you're not uh you're not in control of a lot of things ultimately you know you're 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 always working with other people even if you're a solo designer on a game to actually get that game released unless if you're going to self-publish it or whatever but you're going to be working with publishers and developers and, and sometimes media or, you know, you, you're working with a lot of other people uh, to kind of do that job and uh, much like other jobs as well. So there's a lot of time even where you're just going to keep track of like, am I, is it in my court or is it in somebody else's court? And I, okay, then I don't have to worry about it. So mm. I'm always about just hitting those minimums. And then it's just about keeping good, you know, good track of what you need to be doing. And, and I mean, as horrible as it is, it's just like keeping the top of emails and things like that. I mean, it, like, I think, It's those basic things which I got very used to in my PhD that you have to be pretty, you know, pretty reasonable at Mm. uh, academia. So, um, and uh, again, it's not a unique skill to that either. A lot of lot of professions and and things
1: need to do that. So I don't think it's anything mm -hmm. particular. How many games at once are you working on?
0: (laughs) Well, if I count sort of projects that are in any stage up to the like the box being released. It would be in the 20s, I think, probably. (laughs) Um, But but again, my point is that a lot of, some number of those are, I'm not, I don't have to actively work on them. They're maybe sitting with a publisher and they're doing work on them or we're waiting for the boat to come to, you know, to deliver the games or I've sent a prototype to a publisher and now they're considering it and I tend not to work actively on a game when publishers are considering it because it just sort of, if they come back with feedback and I've already changed something, that might be a bit weird. Um, So in terms of, games which i'm really actively working on it's probably in the 10 to 15 range i Mm -hmm. guess and then you know there's another 10 or 15 which are kind of you know like waiting a publication or i'm waiting back on on various things Um, Mm
1: -hmm. yeah uh you mentioned uh, we've talked about co-design before Uh, i think basically all your stuff is co-designed is that or at least the published stuff is that correct or
0: Pretty much. I have, I've got a few there. So, probably the biggest solo one is, is called Monumental, which was also with FunForge. Forge. It was oh, a big okay. sort of Kickstarter minis sort of game. Um, so, that, so I've got a few solo designs, but yeah, the, you know, like 90% of my games are co designed basically, and a lot with one, you know, Break but I've done probably half of my collaborations have been with him, I would say.
1: So, then uh, how do you, you had mentioned in the thread, and I do recommend the Twitter thread, uh, please give your Twitter handle. The wise owl or something.
0: I'm at, at wise goldfish all one there you go, word. Wise goldfish. Even yeah, was,
1: <laughs> I should have. I should have. Weirder. It was
0: from from this time of like putting anthrop. I I was like funky chicken. So we're on BGG. I'm happy squid. Yeah. <laughs> like it's just. I, I, I just, and of course, like I didn't perceive where the internet would go where realistically having one name everywhere and a name that makes some amount of sense would be useful, but mm. oh well I'm stuck with it now so. That's
1: fine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Too many followers change. So in the Twitter thread that you had mentioned that you, you, you recommend that process like you know you can get more money and more productivity out of multiple co-designs rather than kind of doing it solo. And I imagine that's going to be to taste, like, you know, different people are going to have different personalities, but that's a road that is open where it's like some somebody might see a co-design and be like, okay, I got to split half the money. I got to, you know, kind of do whatever. But then you found that you were more productive and therefore more money coming in. It's one of the things you mentioned.
0: Yeah. Absolutely, I think you you solve for me. You solve problems a lot more quickly. Like in, in, in a way, game design is just solving a series of problems. You know, the game doesn't work. Solve the first problem. Okay, now that's a, there's another problem. And usually, when you have more people working on a single problem, uh, you know, more people are suggesting different answers, and you you're more likely to get to the to the right one eventually. I think the other thing with uh that I think about with game design, you know, sort of like zooming out slightly, I think of it as the kind of throwing darts at a board if you're thinking of it in terms of how to be financially successful or financially sustainable, you know, you'll try every time you release a game, you're kind of throwing a dart at the dartboard and that's a chance, you know, you don't know what dollar value you're going to get from that game necessarily. Like it, a lot of things are out of control. How will it be received? Blah, 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 blah. But if you take more shots at the dartboard, you've got a better chance to, you know, get the bullseye to so to speak, which is, you know, kind of an evergreen game, a game that will sell over and over again. And, Having fifty percent of a game that sells every year is is like still way better than having one hundred percent of a game that only sold for for you know three months. And of, of course, right. it's, not, it's not perfect, but I, I I err on the side of having more shots at that dartboard, uh, you know, to to get because you only need one or two things to do really well, even as a co-designer, um, as as we'll get into the numbers later, and and mm-hmm.
1: that can be sustainable effectively. How do you go about choosing a co-designer?
0: <laughs> uh, there's a strict audition process, and uh, no, I, uh, <laughs> I, I just like working with other people. I, I think I, I, and there's a lot of people I even start co designs with, and maybe they don't go anywhere. You know, sometimes I'm always happy to try working with people. You know, I, sometimes it's I admire some things they've done previously, and I reach out to them uh sometimes you know a lot of the only things we're all part of a group in Cambridge a playtesting group mm. uh there's other folks like David Thompson and Trevor Benjamin so you know Undaunted for example is a very popular game for them uh and Brett and Chris Marling and that whole group of us and we kind of we playtested together and over that time we started sort of like designing together and like, you, you'd split off so this interesting map of you know like x has done a game with y and y is a game with z and z is a game with x and so it's just very natural and it was just you know, quite social. I would say now it's a little bit more. I have to be a bit more outgoing because obviously it's not as much chance to meet people sort of incidentally. All right. Um, mm-hmm. And and sometimes when I have a new idea, I will know that it it requires a certain skill set that I think will make sense. So a, a really good example of this is I'm making more and more narrative games, a bit like the adventure games and echoes. And Dave Neal is is basically the I think probably if not the best you know top three narrative uh, top, top game designers in the world. I would mm. say personally. Um, I think he's amazing. And and I know that if I want to make a game like that, I can make it with like Dave, it will just be better. Like there's no no doubt about it. And uh, ultimately I want to make better games and and also working with Dave will probably make the process easier and quicker as well. So it's 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 a win-win basically.
1: So uh, mind that play testing group people. And <laughs> you know, I know that's well, a little bit tough nowadays, but like that's a good place to start in terms of, you know, because uh, what I'm hearing is if game design is a exercise in problem solving, like you want to find a sympathetic problem solver, you know, and that Absolutely. playtesting group is a place to ha- really hash that out and stuff emerges from there.
0: And I think being open to hearing answers, I, I th- you know, obviously there's a difference between a playtester giving suggestions and then like a designer coming on board, there's, you know, there's some graduation there. But I think if you approach your playtesting group and, and in playtesting in general, game designing in general, you know, in an open way with the idea that you don't have to own everything, that other people can have very useful ideas and actually that even bringing people on even further in terms of co-designing uh, is, can be really, really valuable. I don't know how many, it's interesting. I think, I think folks have very different approaches sure. to game design and some don't even consider it. And I'll just say to those people who haven't considered a design, um, you know, do so. And, and sometimes just being a bit more open and not so worried, you know, you, you have to, it requires you to kind of hold your ideas a little less close to your chest you know, because you have to kind of share them with someone else. And that other person might not completely agree with what you would have done with the game, but you have to kind of share that and kind of, you know, hold it together to go forward, and, you know, to get it finished. Uh, and it, it definitely takes some, some practice to, to get good at that, but I think everyone can do it. And I just say that that's something maybe to keep in mind if, if if you've never thought about it or, or have struggled in, in the past um, to kind of get that fit or to kind of get that working, that might be something to think about.
1: All right. Uh, so I've let, I've let the people wait long enough. Uh, they they want to <laughs> see some of the numbers. Uh, let's get into some of the numbers. And by the way, I want to thank uh, Isaac Shalev who gave me uh, some great questions and some uh, great uh, stuff to think about. Hopefully, i uh, going to have Isaac on the show one of these days. Um, yeah. So OK, let's talk about uh, let's we're, we're going to do the pie chart, right? I think is that where is that a good place to start in terms of, uh, you know? Yeah,
0: well, I mean, yeah. there's there's the uh, hopefully you can see the screen. Um, yep. I mean, this is the sort of the the headline figure, I guess. I didn't know whether you wanted to have the the end figure, but maybe it's a bit easier to have a figure in in mind from the start. Um, Okay. So then uh,
1: for the benefit of the podcast listeners, we are sharing a screen with some uh, concrete numbers. uh, And I'll do my best to translate because it's in euros, I believe. Uh, and then let's see oh, what, yeah. what that, uh, that conversion is in dollars.
0: <laughs> I could do a super quick. I've got my other thing open in my. Okay, uh,
1: super quick. There you go. I like super quick. That, that,
0: that will work. Okay, so yeah, so basically, this is looking at my total royalties for 2021. Uh, and from uh, royalties, so this doesn't include advances. So these are only from games that have already been released. Uh, and this is for a total of 14 separate games or series. I counted the image games all as one and Echoes, for example, are all as one. Um, and that comes out to about uh, just under 45,000 euros, and that's about 51,000 US dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also did a few other small things, like I did a bit of development, and but actually that's a very, very small amount of the total thing. Uh, and then with advances, so I, with advances I got about uh, 10,000 euros uh, in the year, which is about uh, 11, a bit over 11,000 uh, US dollars. Um, so that's advances for games that haven't been released yet. Uh, and again, I should note, which I should have said, with all of this, as we've, do, we've been talking with co design, most of this is 50% of the total amount that would have been paid because I get half of, of my co design. So, you know, when I say. So is
1: after the divisions and everything.
0: Exactly. So, when I say I get 10,000 euros from advances, in reality, the total from the games is like 20,000 euros, but I got half, sort of thing. Right. Uh, and so that gives a total of, of about uh, just under 55,000 uh, euros for the year, which is about 62,000 US dollars uh, mm-hmm. for, for an income. So actually for, uh, again, I don't know, in the US, that's actually a pretty good wage, to be honest. Sure. In Certainly in the Czech Re- Czech Republic, it's very good, but even the UK, uh, it's more than what I would have earned in my previous job, um, so.
1: I mean, in yeah, America, it, was, it totally depends on where you are. You know, yeah, like yeah. if you are, I mean, there's, there's cities in America where, you know, say, 60-ish thousand dollars will actually do you really, really good. And then there's cities in America where you're going to have to just like scrimp and scrape, you know, uh, and like, I actually moved out of New York city. I'm from New York city and I had to move out because I was making $60,000 and it was not enough. You know, I had, it was a one bedroom apartment. I was paying about 2000 a month for it us. Oh Uh, and you know, the the numbers just don't add up when you're making that level of income. Um, so actually, um, before we go into the, the nuts and bolts, um, describe like talking about numbers just make, gives you the feel sometimes, right? It's because it's like a, almost like a dirty secret. You know, people just don't like talking about these numbers. And, you know, it's like, oh, well, you know, I'm, if I'm making too much, I don't want to, you know, uh, cheese people off who are making a little bit less. Or if I'm making like less, I don't want to, you know, embarrass myself blah, blah, So it comes, there's so much psychological stuff that goes into being this transparent. So that's another reason that, that your thread li- leapt out to me. So just talk a little bit about that, those feelings for you and why you thought it was so important to be transparent with the numbers despite that maybe emotional barrier.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, just talking about money generally is, is sort of a, you know, a, a, not forbidden, but it's a sort of taboo subject. I think uh, it's interesting because I, even before I did this Twitter thread, I put out a different tweet which said, you know, I know everyone's been doing it tough this, you know, this couple of last year. I mean, in particular, you sort of, you know, especially on Twitter, you know, a lot, there's a lot of, quite understandably, a lot of uh, difficulty, a lot of uh, struggle for a lot of different reasons. But it's probably a bit more than normal because of of, of what we've had over the last few years. But um, so I was like do people want to hear about this knowing that I've had a good year actually like and and, uh, and but I'm aware of other people in the industry that are struggling you know and that's that's not really any fault of their own so you know there's a bit of a sense that yeah what you said you don't want to it's not about putting people off but it was more about I don't I I uh, I like to think about what I put on Twitter when I can is is trying to help designers and help people you know design games and and do it as a profession and and that in the end was what drove me to like that's why I should do this regardless of all these other kind of feelings that and, and I mean as it was born out it was very, it was quite positively received and I think it, it you know, it was useful to, to a lot of people I actually did do it last year as well I. Um, I used to stream and I didn't do it on Twitter I did it on stream, uh, so I have the same numbers from last year, which are actually about the same Um uh it turns out of course it probably is better idea to put it on twitter because i have more people following me on twitter but uh yeah i intend to do it and i had some really good examples from other folks in the industry uh, there's a person called arnold rowers who runs a digital studio called tiny tiny touch type sorry tiny touch tales mm. i hope that's right um he makes app games so some folks might know card crawl or card thief there's really really amazing app games and actually we he's one of the people i reached out over the internet to say can we design something together and we'll have a a, an app coming out next year but he for a very long time has done a yearly blog post where he he really he basically puts the graph of his sales you know because with 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 apps you know you get kind of an output or like a dashboard of you know these were the sales each month or, or whatever. And and it's really just like there are the numbers, bam. Um I mean he has a slightly more uh freedom, I guess, because he he is the publisher and he is, you know, the kind of sole person. And so he can make that decision to even give the, the most granular numbers. Um I have to step one step back. Um, you know, you notice that I always give kind of the total. I don't mm-hmm. go like X game X made this exact amount of money because right. uh I think a lot of publishers wouldn't mind me sharing the numbers but it is some amount of, you know, kind of like, it's not proprietary knowledge, but it's, you know, like sales figures, you know, like, you know, it's, I think I want to leave it up to the publishers if they want to share those specifically, but I just try and give an overall picture. I talk about, you know, advance rates, for example, and I talk about, you know, I had one contract with this amount, one contract with this amount, and, you know, X contracts with this amount, but I don't name names. Uh, Mm -hmm. Maybe that would be useful. I think, I was actually having a conversation a bit earlier uh, the other day with another designer. The problem with it's, it's. I think it's much more a problem with with bad publishers. You know, you would. In some ways, you would love to be able to tell designers, don't work with these publishers because they're problematic. Um,
1: they'll stiff you. They'll they'll lowball well, you. though.
0: Yeah. it's yeah well there's yeah there's a lot of problems uh, unfortunately i mean that you know it's it, the industry is still kind of maturing in a way um and it, and it, there's always going to be indie, independent publishers and things like that and that's great um i haven't found the way to be specific in a public way when it needs to and that's something i i want to keep working on because um I think it is useful. I don't, I haven't quite found the balance. I don't know where it is sure. to, you know, you, because sometimes you do have to be specific. Sometimes you do actually have to say, you know what, like, I, and I, cause I am in a position of power. I could say that about a publisher um, and, you know, I, I won't face, you know, I'll still be okay basically, but maybe that, that publisher or that designers whose first game or something, they don't have that kind of power. That being said, there are some other famous examples of other designers who have done that, in especially in ways which I think are not helpful or in, in situations which are a little bit more murky. So, yeah, anyway, that's that's okay. a slight side tangent, but I'm, I'm still working on that.
1: <laughs> that's okay. I mean, let's go into the breakdown. Yeah, into so... Where, where that where the stream comes from. Yeah,
0: so this is the, the pie chart. Um, so as you can see, it's uh, 60% uh, from the adventure games, basically. I mean, that, partly that's because, uh, you know, at this point, it, there are six different... Sorry, from, this, uh, from these royalties that were four different titles I think there are now six there were two more released last year mm-hmm. that I haven't received royalties on yet um, and those are in a lot of different languages um, you know they sell mostly in German but you know the English copies in the US and UK are, are quite uh you know significant and there's some French and, and other languages they've actually been into um yeah I don't know how many probably eight or nine languages now um and so yeah that that is that it's you know it's a large chunk of change but Uh, you know, going back to kind of the psychological thing is once you get I'm not sure if I would necessarily call the adventure games evergreens yet. They're somewhere in between because this new model where you have these areas of games where you release regular content, it's somewhere in between evergreen and, you know, almost like a subscription or a magazine which comes out with (coughs) excuse me, sorry, which comes out with new, you know, new content regularly and you can, if you have a kind of enfranchised audience, Mm -hmm. they'll keep buying it so it it kind of can sell regularly. Um, And that's what we have with the adventure games. And and that's another thing to think that's sort of more open, I think now, designers, when you're thinking about trying to get an evergreen title, uh, there are different ways to do that now that I think probably didn't exist maybe five or or even, you know, three years ago, uh, you know, Patreon, Kickstarter, like people like button shy, uh, Mm -hmm. have kind of shown that like these kind of more subscription models or content releases, uh, there's new ways to kind of build a regular income base. And that money from the adventure games, because that's happened over the last two or three years now, that gave me some degree of confidence that like, okay, this is kind of like if everything else goes terribly, like if I don't sell any of my old games, if they all go to zero, if I don't sign any other new games, um, I will have this kind of like baseline income. And and yeah, it's not like that by itself is not quite enough to, to live on, but there is kind of a basic level that I'd be okay. And also I knew when I made that decision to go full-time, you know, I had... X number of games which I knew were going to be released that I had a reasonable confidence that it, you know, they'd also make some money. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so that that is the thing that kind of really enables everything. And then after that, you can see it really drops off, you know, quite quickly in a way. So Chocolate Factory is is about 14%. Actually, these numbers are slightly... Um, <laughs> uh, the accounting with Chocolate Factory, nothing to do with the publisher, it's all to do with my problem. Uh, another note to anybody who wants to be independent, don't try and uh, be... A citizen of one country who works in another country who <laughs> lives is a tax resident in a third country right. because your taxes get very very complicated very quickly. So there was a little bit of accounting stuff that probably meant that this year I got more of Chocolate Factory. It, it got it got spread out longer, basically is my point, right? Um, which 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 is fine. And then Echoes is is ten percent. And actually, that was I mean just to sh- you know to give an idea of of things like these big box stores. That was that money is purely from the pre-sales to Target in the US and to to Talia, which is a sort of a a big box book chain in Germany. It's like one of the big, uh, you know, I don't know, like borders, I guess, in uh, something like that, or I don't know, maybe does borders exist anymore? I don't know.
1: No, we're Uh, gone with borders. (laughs) Okay,
0: (laughs) Okay, I'm out out of the, but anyway, so that, I mean, that's only pre-sales of that uh, game. So that also shows kind of how much these big box stores, you know, order, before, you know, anything happens, you know, that doesn't happen with with other games. Mm. So um, that that really helped with with Echoes as well.
1: So you had mentioned before, like a range of like six to 8% in terms of a designer royalty.
0: So this is for the, yeah. So this for the contracts. So uh, yeah, yeah, in the thread, I, yeah, I don't have a slide for it I'm afraid, but in the thread uh, I had signed eight contracts, I think it was, or or nine contracts this year. Uh, And in those contracts, one had the uh, designer royalties at 6%. And I should note, again, this is the total percentage, obviously if there's a co designer be split, but I, you know, they would have offered the same percentage whether it was one designer or two designers. So yes, one contract was 6%, one contract was seven, and the rest was at 8%. And this is of the total sales from the publisher side. So if that publisher will sell the games to a distributor, you're getting 8% of the distributor price effectively. Um, if they sell out on a Kickstarter, you're getting 8% of the pledge. Like they t- usually take out Kickstarter fees and, you know, any shipping first, but then you get 8% of that. So obviously if, if something is kickstarted, you're getting usually a higher dollar amount because, mm-hmm. you know, it's distributive cost is usually like about 40% of M- M- MSRP. But, um, you know, that that's kind of how it works out. And, and thankfully in more and more contracts, uh, d- publishers are being better at, Really specifying things like crowdfunding and how that can affect royalties, and uh, which is which is important.
1: Okay, and so uh, a lot of times people don't know what to ask. Like I've had the advice, uh, independently of someone getting five percent and that kind of thing. Yeah, so- I
0: mean, I think it's it, it it's a slightly contentious topic. I even, uh, you know, I talk to publishers and and we disagree. Um, I think in the and this is my experience. I mean, a bit lucky in the sense that uh, I work with publishers from all around the world and definitely in the US, at least my perception is that US publishers generally still have this 5% rule in their head uh, and that is much more common and, and that spreads of course to the designer community as well because I work with those publishers Sure. Um, and that is, there is a difference that when I work with European publishers, there's not that preconception. Now that's not to say that European publishers don't offer 5%, sometimes they do but it's just that there's not this like it's it's definitely 5% and it's it seems like a much easier conversation um and that it's anecdotal I haven't worked with absolutely every publisher and there are certainly some North American publishers who are you know giving royalties uh, much higher than 5% um but I think that especially if it's crowdfunded you know I think that that is also a reason that the percentages should be higher because uh there is less risk for the publisher that there is, that there isn't the traditional. Hmm. Uh, so they should be able to share some of those profits uh, like slightly more evenly with, uh, with, with the, with the uh, designer. And I think honestly, like if I was just to say to a designer, just ask for 6%, if possible, I think like for me, and I said it in the thread, I think 6% is should be the new minimum. Um, but again, it, there are other details which can change that. You know, there are sometimes there's an IP involved. Sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, there's different manufacturing processes. Um, also, I tend to give smaller publishers like, you know, like if the publisher is smaller, you know, it's like their first or second game. It's it's a different process as to working with a much more established uh, publisher. Who, you know, like if they have you know cash flow problems for a small publisher is a lot different than it is for a large large publisher. So. I kind of give the smaller publishers maybe a little bit more room to, you know, I'm not as, I don't really think I'm demanding, but I think it's it's just, I mean, that's part of the reason to try to share these numbers is to have a conversation around it. And so people could go like, oh, actually, this person is getting royalty rates of X, Y, and Z. So why can't I ask for that? Mm-hmm. Um, and I should also note I don't think I'm getting these rates because like I'm Matthew Dunster, I'm a famous designer. My, my name does not sell boxes. Uh, so
1: didn't even you know, know that you had not- designed a laptop game.
0: But no, it's just it's just to say that you know don't don't feel like you know oh that guy's you know well established you know whatever that's <laughs> not that's not I don't think that's you know I, uh, for some of these publishers I even have enough to ask for eight percent that's that's their first offer. And that's a standard thing, so.
1: Nice. I mean, it's, I really want to have this conversation. I'm a union person. I I used to do union organizing in uh, the way back time. Uh, And, you know, there's always this stigma to ask, right? And it's like, you know, on, on one hand, they don't want to look greedy, right? On the other hand, they don't want a publisher to label them as greedy. So like, there's like, you know, inner stigma and outer stigma that you risk by quote unquote, asking for too much and you know so if an industry standard is 5% here in america as you say then i think there is a, resi- a reticence to ask for more because then it's like oh well you're you know, who are you better than these other people and this like fraught emotional experience happens and meanwhile like that's how you get change that's how yeah. you get you're able to sustain a little bit more and i think that you know if you are a designer out there uh, who's listening to the show and who wants to like really make a go of it and think that it can do a really good job and, and make a lot of people happy as a full-time designer. And there's this barrier though, that's over, you know because I'm not making enough, so to speak. Then we're trying, I guess the, one of the functions of the show is trying to give people the confidence to go for it. And, you know, like continue conversations to make relationships and find out what is reasonable. Don't come in asking for 13 percent or something like that. Yeah. Uh but you know, here's a here's a, a real way that you can you know advocate for yourself and make a little bit more. At,
0: at just further to those designers, I think there's a couple of places that they can look at, even at, use as a kind of a support for for them asking you know so cardboard edison publishes some great reviews. In fact they they ask designers to submit details of the contracts they've signed. They've just finished their last review which was for the last five years where they asked designers to Anonymously uh, put details of, of the contracts that they had signed and they agglomerated that information and made a really great series of infographics. They're free to, to, to find. If you look up cardboard and you'll find the, the infographics, they're really great. And they show that yes, there are a lot of things at 5%, but there are certainly a lot of contracts, which are more than 5%. Uh, the other thing and you were talking about unions and in Germany, they have uh, SAZ. Uh, I'm not, I'm going to butcher it. If I try and say it. it's like Spiel or Tor and so, something it's basically a game designers association. It's Mm. been going for about 30 years and it is kind of close to a union in a way Um, they have an English speaking kind of like branch or like that you could be, you could be part of it, no matter where you live in the world. That's also something for the younger designers to look at. They help looking at contracts. They, I think they offer like free consultations in terms of uh, you know, if you've got a contract from a, from a publisher, you can show it to them and they can, you know, give you some advice about that, that they have like a a lawyer um it's it's a little bit tricky if depending on which country you're in because obviously laws are a bit different but there are some general principles that are are always the same they also have like some really great draft contracts which you can kind of compare and like see like what are some standard clauses like so i didn't we're not going to get into now but there you know there's a lot of other things outside of just a base royalty rate that you should be making sure that you have like protections for yourself as a designer you know like what happens if the publisher goes out of business or what if they never sell the game this kind of thing Right. Um, what if the check so bounces? There are, there are, Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of good resources out there. And I think that, again, that can help you give a little bit more, um, you know, a little bit more weight to what you're saying. And the, the final thing I'll say, which is, um, especially if you do desire, I don't think you would, you would know this, but, you know, when a, when a publisher, in my opinion, when a publisher makes an offer for your game, they've already invested a certain amount of time in that game. Uh, they've play tested it, they've usually maybe shown it to other people at the company, they've maybe even thought about art and things like that. The moment they make that offer, they are already invested in the game. That is your point. It's to, it is a negotiation, and that's perfectly reasonable. And that is, you know, that is, that is business. This is a business decision. Um, but don't feel that if you ask for something, the worst they can do is no, and that can happen. I mean, that, that doesn't always happen. But don't think that they're going to turn around and go like, well, we don't want to work with this person. We're going to rescind the offer. I think right. sometimes there is a I'll little bit of- dare they
1: ask there. for this extra thing, yeah.
0: Exactly, because that's not in their interest either. Like they, they, you know, if they don't want to do it, they will say no, but they're not going to go like further and go like, oh, well, we're going to rescind the offer altogether because that doesn't make sense for them either because they want to publish the game. Uh, and they've they've already invested time. And in if, if it's just a negotiation, which is, again, like not that much effort for them to do the negotiation. So I would just, you know, don't feel that, you know, And I've never, I've never had a, you know, an interaction with a publisher, including you know earlier in my career when I maybe wasn't as known or, or whatever, where anyone has re, re, um, behaved remotely like that, you know. Okay. And
1: Great.
0: you know, I regularly ask for. Sometimes I have asked for royalty increases. I usually ask for more copies of my game. Um, so you know, you you're usually promised a certain number of games, you know, author copies, effectively often I ask for double what they put in the contract just because I like to be able to give them to, especially the people who play test the game. I, I, I like to have enough that I don't feel like I have to ration it out amongst people. Again, there's always, uh, you know, not always possible. And, and sometimes, you know, if it's a big, you know, huge Kickstarter, I don't get like hundreds of copies of them because that, that doesn't make any sense. But uh, again, like it, people are usually very reasonable. It's okay to negotiate at that point. It's not, you, it's not going to dissuade them from working with you. The worst they can t- do is, is to say no. Um, but yes, you could at least ask the question, which is, is a good step to uh, start to, you know, start to hopefully raise the minimum floor for everybody. Absolutely.
1: So uh, very quickly, before I go on to advances, you mentioned author copies. So then what's a good number there?
0: Yes, I think uh, usually, basically, it depends on like how many they put in a case sometimes. Usually the number is between 6 to 12, I would say. Um, and I think asking for 12 is perfect, about like 10 or 12 um, Is reasonable, but it's like six is a minimum. I think again, this kind of scales a little bit depending on the size of the game. If it's a really tiny game, obviously it's a little bit easier to get more copies. Um, If it's a huge game, maybe you're only going to get four or five because it's just more expensive to make. I think that's okay. Uh, The other thing to kind of with all the copies is foreign language editions can be another thing. Um, You can specify in the contract that you want uh, a copy of each foreign language edition. It's not always going to happen, and it's I don't. It's not something I necessarily think of as essential, but. Uh, you could say it's certainly reasonable to ask and, and a lot of publishers are more than happy to do that. Um, and, and again, like if you haven't made a lot of games, if this is your one game that you've made, uh, it could be nice to see all the different editions in different languages around the world. So that's also something to ask for nice. uh, as well.
1: So let's get to advances. I've mentioned them a couple of times. Uh, that's a, a, a pretty uh, important part of the process, especially for a newer designer starting out because they might not like that, that advance can do some things like it can help, you know, uh, pay for a project that didn't work out along the line. I mean, like it, it really uh, cushions the runway a little bit. So, um, you know, how does, how do advances work? Uh, is that a normal thing? Do every, does every design have an advance uh, in there? Um, what's a good number for it, you know, break it all down.
0: Yeah, so I've got, I do actually have a slide for this for the, for the podcast viewers. Um, so again, it was about 10,000 euros from nine games for the last year. And most of those were co-designed. In terms of advances, uh, so for those who don't know, advances are the payment you get upon signing the contract. Uh, they're an advance on royalties, so they'll be uh, if you would be paid royalties later, then the advance will be subtracted from those royalties before you you know get paid mm. over that. Uh, but that to essentially protect the designer, uh, especially if the game is never made after you sign it, so it's essentially paying you something back for the time uh, for the design um, before it's actually manufactured, because obviously there's usually at least a year, if not more from the point of signing to the game actually being released. And and I should say also, it's a year, maybe until the game's published, but then it's maybe even another year until you get paid royalties, because obviously there's, you're only going to get paid royalties after the fact, after they've got mm-hmm. uh, sold. And, and sometimes that only happens once a year, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but anyway, the, so I've told this is total advances. So this would be, if you are a solo designer, you would get this hundred uh, percent. These numbers I'm getting 50% of these numbers. Uh, they range from about a thousand euros, which I think is like 1,100 uh, US dollars or something like that. I mm-hmm. think it's like an extra 10% in US dollars. And the rest was somewhere between two and two and a half thousand euros. So somewhere between two and 3,000 US dollars. Uh, again, and this is sort of total advance amounts. Um, I should say most of these games are slightly bigger games. I think one thing that does affect the advances is, I don't, you know, if the, it depends on like what the expected royalty rate is going to be. If it's a game that's selling for more, you know, it's expected you're going to, if you make the same number of copies, then the actual like base amount of money you make for the royalties is greater. So, mm. you know, it does scale a little bit. I think uh, in my opinion, somewhere around like 500 pounds is a good minimum amount. So that would be about six like or 500 USD is, is also fine. Uh, in terms of, like think what the absolute minimum is in terms of a total advance that you should, should see in a contract, because... The advance is not just a protection for you, but it's also a sign of the sort of the publisher's seriousness, you know, that they are, I said it a little earlier about how they've already invested time, you know, when they thinking of signing a game. But, but once you sign it, you also, the advance is in part them showing their seriousness about um, wanting to publish the game and having some skin, skin in the game because you know, maybe something that's not talked about as much either is the fact that we, you know, we think a lot about as designers and, and especially newer designers, it's like, I, do, I just want to sign my game. You know, that's, that's right. the, that's the pinnacle I have to reach. And yes, that is, that is of course like the first thing that you have to do, but there are so many things that can go wrong in between signing a game uh, that might not see, you know, it might ever, never actually get released. And in some ways that's a much, much harder process to go through because that can even be more disappointing. Of course, like you, you get very used to pitching games and then being, you know, not interested in it but right um and you want as much stuff in the contract uh which sort of protects you for that and advances are again one of the most important things and actually this year uh three i think either two or three of the games which have been included in these as are in fact games that were either already released from other publishers in the past or games that had been previously signed with a publisher but were never released Mm. so in some ways actually this is the second time I'm getting paid for some of these games. Now, of course, if you were to do an actual like rate per year, it's terrible because, you know, some of these games have been, there was one of the games that I re-signed that had been sitting with a publisher for four years or something. So, you know, yes, I'm getting an extra thousand euros now, but it hasn't done anything for five years, you know, so it's not exactly great rate, but at least I did get something uh, out of that, you know, it wasn't completely zero. Um, and, And that's why, you know, advances are, extremely important and having that that minimum amount and really making sure that you that you ask for that make sure that's in the contract definitely but make sure that uh, it's clear about the amount uh, and clear about how that's going to be paid and, and you know that the time frame on that
1: and that's also a little bit of an emotional thing you're asking for a publisher to hand over money that they have not made on the game. Uh, in a sense and, and uh, you know royalties are a little bit more safer for them because like they've already had the sales and it's like okay here's a section of what you're doing so like that can also be you know I imagine anyway uh, you know as a designer asking for x amount you know that could be a little bit of an emotional thing for them it's like okay you're, you're, at, you're basically asking them to pay them for work that hasn't been done yet. So. Sure.
0: But I think I think the thing to, yeah, I completely agree with that. And I'd say that we have to normalize the point is that that is like the cost of doing business if you're a publisher. Mm-hmm. Like if you want to sign a game, part of that cost is paying in advance, you know, just much like you may have paid a lawyer, paid a lawyer to draw up the contracts originally, you know, which is another cost, which you, you know, that is, uh, it is not, I, I'm saying a lot of things, I guess, in a very confident way. I'm not a publisher. So I, you know, one day it would be good, you know, have a publisher yeah. on it. I don't want to be too strident, but I don't think it's acceptable for a publisher to come back and say, we can't pay advance. Maybe it, it might be smaller than what you want. Um, you know, maybe like in the absolute worst instance, you know, something like $250, you know, again, I think it depends on the publisher, definitely smaller, younger publishers. It is much harder to, to give a lot of money upfront because for them cash flow is even more important. And I think that's where you have to adjust your expectations, but the presence of a, an advance, like of an amount uh, is, you know, it is just, it. it's, it should be standard. And, and unfortunately it's, it's sort of, in, in my mind it is standard, uh, but of course there are still some publishers who are, who are not offering it. And I think, yeah, that, that should not happen anymore, basically.
1: Right, no, and we are trying, I mean, look, we are trying to push for change. That's just kind of the bottom line here. Okay, uh, okay so then, uh, so this has been really valuable information. I would like to wrap up. Um, uh, with one last topic, which is kind of near to my heart as a person, I, you know my channel and you know I do crit- cultural criticisms of games and everything. So, uh, you know, the, there's this like persistent question of like, why do we keep getting these crappy themes, colonialist themes and, you know, the 18,000th Cthulhu game and like the answer is in the finances, like the answer is in like what you what you described of, okay, you know, you need that evergreen you know, and I remember when you put this thread up on Meeple Syrup, or I think like San Fun Lim had had relinked it, uh, someone had said, okay, this just tells me that I need to work on hits. And, you know, if it's not going to be a hit, it's not worth my time. And that's kind of the conclusion that one might get from, you know, this, like, I don't want to work on a a game that has one print, one 5,000 copies and done that I'm not going to make a lot of money on that. I need to make sure it's a hit. And therefore people know what sells the familiar stuff, which kind of has some crappiness in it. Uh, so I guess break that down a little bit, This that idea. And what is your um, approach? Like, how do you determine what you work on? That idea of like, I need a hit, how strong is that in the back of your mind? And how much does that pull you towards certain designs, certain themes over others?
0: That's a, it's a really great point and a great area too. And I saw that, that comment as well. I, I kind of disagree with that. I think, firstly, if you, if everyone knew what a hit was when you started working on it, we'd all only be working on hits and we would do that all the time. I'd never release a game that didn't. So firstly, it's kind of impossible to work out what's going to be a hit. Even if you put together, like I'm going to put together the five best things that are selling right now. And that's going to sell like amazing. That that doesn't guarantee anything. So I think thinking that you can aim for hits, like aiming for the Spiel des Jahres is similar. Like you can't do that. I mean, that's, that's something completely out of your control and, Actually, having a hit game is kind of out of your control as well. So, from the designer point of view, I would say, and uh, links back to what I said earlier, is is I think releasing actually more games of various types. You know, lots of different. You know, I release games for different. Oh, Get those sorry. darts
1: going. Get those darts going. Yes,
0: exactly. And mm-hmm. and at different dartboards as well. You know, so I release games for children, I release games, you know, sort of heavier strategic games. I release narrative games, there's cooperative games. Or, you know, uh, we just did with postmark games, we're doing these print at home games that we did over on Kickstarter, uh, you know, which is just print-at-home, print and play kind of games. Um, you know, and those give you all those chances to get those hits. But you can control at least how many shots you're taking at the dartboard. You can't to a certain degree you can't you know aim where they're gonna let all that being said there are of course some things which are going to be inherently uh, for for whatever reason more niche than others in in the kind of like general hobbyist space um i don't i think my thing i guess is about product and there are a lot of different things that go into games as a product and that's going to ultimately determine i think in some way how they sell that is like theme and setting is a huge part of that. And I think uh, in some ways, I hope it's very, very slowly changing, like things like, for example, Wingspan doing very, very well, or I think the really great work um, uh, from uh, FlatOut Games, uh, the designers of of Point Salad and Calico Mm -hmm. and Cascadia, which has done amazingly well with, you know, okay. We're not exactly, we haven't, fully shifted from the really traditional theme, but we're slightly moving in a, in a different direction. Hopefully could show to publishers who are thinking, okay, you know, I'm gonna get a bit off the board. Could also say to designers, well, how about, you know, you look at, I think actually one of the great things about Wingspan in this particular is that that theme is baked so well into the game. Mm-hmm. It's not something you could have applied later. I think that hopefully gives inspiration to designers to feel like, oh, if I'm passionate about something, and I can design a game that really marries that theme and that setting really well with what I'm doing in the game. That could be, be a successful package, even if that particular setting or theme hasn't been seen before or hasn't been popular before. Because I think that's that actually the, the, the fit is really important rather than necessarily exactly what the, what the actual theme is or what the actual setting is. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, so I think that's also something to think about. And the only other thing that is also coming up and Carboard Edison asked the question in their survey. It's the first time I've actually seen it where they asked whether designers had in their contracts had a clause, which gave them, I oh don't know, actually I might have it slightly wrong, but it was basically they have some uh, control over, uh, this was about representation again, not necessarily about specifically about setting or theme, but was there a clause in the contract where they, uh, the publisher, um, either would let the designer have, you know, like would have to approve like the, the representation of, of, mm. of people in the game and, and having a diverse representation or some statement to the effect that, you know, that there would be a diverse rep- representation in the game. I can't. You- please look at it. If, if you can link the carbonism thing, that'll be great. Cause I've forgotten the exact wording of it, but basically I may have in them some on the contracts, show at
1: some point. I may reach out. Yeah.
0: And, yeah. And I follow. think it would be really interesting because some, I haven't seen it personally and it's good because again, like, as we talk about talking about things means you start thinking about them. And the fact that these clauses can be a thing is, is something that I will think about possibly having in contracts, which is, I would say it's a difficult thing as a, like, if you think of it just from a purely legal point of view, I'm not exactly sure how they would be worded to, to ensure that. But even having that conversation with a publisher when you're in the process of designing, sorry, in the process of signing the game, um, you know, I always think about that, that, again, that negotiation period is not just about the actual details of the contract or the numbers. It's also about working out whether you want to work with that publisher. Like, do your values do you align with them? Does their vision for the game align with your vision for the game? That's not to say that you have to completely, you know, that they have to completely agree with everything you want the game to be, but can you at least, can they express their vision and can you get on board with that vision or at least work together to something? And similarly, you know, do you agree with how they conduct business? And, and you know, it's a bit of a, it's it, it's, it, and it's it's really, really hard as a as first-time designer because you, again, you feel very much like you're in, you, you know, you're not in a position of power at that point. Um, but it is also, it is the best time, if any, again, because the publisher wants the game. So that's the time to ask the questions about, you know, how do you view diverse, you know, representation in your game? Do you have a diverse uh, range of characters in your game? Maybe if you have an issue with something in their back catalog um, or that concerns you, you might say, look, I know that you, I've seen your previous games done X, but actually for me, it would be really, really important. And I think it's yeah. important to have a, a more diverse representation. Have that conversation, even if it can't be an actual uh clause in the contract which may be difficult for various reasons at least you can have that conversation you can feel satisfied to go into to that relationship effectively feeling like mm-hmm. your you know everything kind of aligns um, mm-hmm. which, yeah which is is also important
1: yeah i mean you're talking about uh designers who have very strong convictions about representation about you know different themes like elizabeth hargrave has a very strong contract she wasn't going to make thinking about anything else she she actually describes how you know she moved i uh, kind of gave wingspan or not like offered wingspan like demoed wingspan for people. And they were like, okay, we could change the theme over here. We'll publish it or we'll work on it. And she's like, Nope, we're going to find somebody that. So that takes a a real thing. And that's a certain type of person, I guess, like to speak to the person who, I don't know, like they, like they want to publish their game, like at the end of the day, they just want to get their game published. And, you know, is it your experience that, you know, they, that you have met designers that do feel pulled towards these familiar tried and true is that is that something that you've encountered or is that maybe changing over the last little while
0: oh, no definitely like you you see a lot of the kind of generic you know trading the mediterranean fantasy i saw so I, I was a judge on the cardboard edison uh, competition last year which is kind of the maybe the first time i've kind of been on the other side of like kind of receiving pitches, i guess and yeah i was surprised of all the you know you, yeah you do see the generic. i i think from a designer point of view uh I think part of that has to do with these themes are kind of they're flexible enough that they can support almost anything. And, mm. and I think I think a lot of still a lot of designers are kind of mechanisms led, or at least the, the, I don't know. I, I feel like the hobbyist designers that you know, they, it pulls a little heavier. They're a little bit more strategic, a little bit more mechanical led. That's a complete generalization, but at least that's what I saw. And when you have this kind of mechanism you want, you just want a game you know, setting to kind of support that. Mm-hmm. And it's also not as important to you, you know, you, you're interested in how the game plays. Yeah. And I want my role want to...
1: selection worker placement game uh, with well, a multiple pass victory. I don't care if it has zombies or if it has trading or if it has all these other things. E-
0: exactly, exactly. I, I guess the only thing I would say to, to those people, which I do understand, and I, and I think all these things we're talking about, you've got, you do have to start somewhere. It's, it's you know, it, we, you kind of get better all the time just getting back to Elizabeth Halligrave and, and, and Wingspan and again why I, I in my opinion why it's one of the reasons why it's sold so well use that as some inspiration to realize that um even if you can't even if the mechanisms of the game are really important try and find something distinctive in a setting or theme especially something that has not been seen before um uh and where you feel like you know because it, there's no reason not to, you're, you know, you're not going to lose anything from your game. You're still going to get your great, you know, the game you want, uh, it can only do better. I think in this, I think because, you know there is slowly more and more appetite for a more diverse range of themes and representation in the market that could be actually a selling factor. And in fact, it, you know, it's not quite there and still a lot of work to go, but you know you could be a part of that kind of rising wave towards where sales start to reflect you know, uh, turning away from these, you know, sort of old tired colonial themes. Um, and the only other thing is they do kind of like blend together, I would say a little bit, you know, like if you want your game to stand out, uh, when you've pitched it to, you know, if a publisher's heard 30 pitches in a day, and this is the 15th trading in a Mediterranean game, even from just a very pra- practical level, if you've come up with something really distinctive and and new then they're going to remember that, you know, that that's mm-hmm. a good thing. And that will transfer to a consumer as well. Um, so. Mm-hmm.
1: All right. So we've covered a lot of ground and you have d- uncovered a lot of nuts and bolts. Thank you so much for breaking it down. Uh, so I think we'll uh, we're definitely going to kind of end that here, but I don't think this is going to be the end. I think that we can definitely uh, we have a lot of um, different topics to explore and the hobby is going to keep on growing. So absolutely, uh, you know, anytime you'd like to come back on the show to share some more industry insights, uh, you are more than welcome. This has been amazing.
0: No, my pleasure. Thanks very much for having me on, Jason
1: and uh wise goldfish on twitter if we wanted to reach yes, out
0: one one word wise goldfish yes exactly.
1: one word wise goldfish and you have the adventure games more adventure games are coming out uh yes yeah, so and- they've just
0: released mm-hmm. grand hotel abandon in english in the states so you should be able to to get that right now and and as i said the echo series for ramsweger uh the first two are the dancer and the cocktail they're available right now as well so
1: Mm-hmm. and you know dot dot dot
0: yes yes more, come, Ab- more driven
1: game and all sorts of stuff that's coming in the next year so you are definitely going to be yeah. very busy and hopefully this uh the 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 full-time designer thing really works out you're able to kind of ride this through for a long
0: yes time. i don't have to come back next year saying i'm now now a part-time designer <laughs> hopefully i
1: keep going <laughs> forward <laughs> went back to research assisting <laughs> all that stuff well matthew Dunstan, thank you so so much uh please come back on the show anytime you want
0: i oh, will thank you again jason
1: if you can change your mind, you can change the world, people. So until next time, later, everybody.
0: Bye. Thanks for joining us again for the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Check out our YouTube channel at One Stop Co-op Shop. Also, join us for games and discussion on our Discord channel. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com onestop one stop. Or leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week for another Top 5 list.